Hello everybody, welcome back to the BSF Lecture Talks on Matthew. I'm Abraham Lee, the teaching leader for the San Francisco region in BSF. And today we are going to be looking at Matthew chapter 26 and 27, where we read of Jesus' betrayal, his arrest, interrogation before the Sanhedrin and Roman court, his torture, and his march up to the cross of Calvary. So Calvary comes to us from the Latin word calvaria, which means skull. The Bible tells us the Messiah's crucifixion took place at the place of the skull, though scholars are not sure why that place was called that. Uh, some people think geographically or geologically there might have been something that looked like the skull, or maybe it was a burial ground, or but it was outside the city, and so we know that it might have been a very unpleasant place outside the city gates prominent enough to be visible to those standing from a distance because we do read in chapter 2755 that many of the women saw all that was happening from a distance while the I guess the men were uh, just closer people are living through this critical time in God's work in human history of seeing the deliverer the Messiah come and achieve God's perfect plan for us and our deliverance so they're either watching and learning with a Christ orientation, or they're preoccupied with a self-orientation. You know, the word orientation is often used word these days, most often used in describing one's sexual orientation uh, as the primary orientation or means of identifying oneself. The Bible tells us, though, that our primary orientation must always be directed to God through his son, the promised Messiah, whose prophetic name is Yeshua or Joshua, deliverer and savior. Because it is only by this name we can be saved. Yeshua means deliverer or savior. No other orientation matters. But in Matthew 26 and 27, we see people with no clear orientation other than themselves. They have no orientation to God's promise and plan. So what is your orientation today? Is your perspective, are they or perspectives directed and dominated by other orientations or dominant perspectives of ourselves? If it is, and alienate us from the life of Jesus, our Yeshua, our Messiah. And so this is the key lesson in the passage this week as God works through all circumstances to accomplish his sovereign plans. And a real benefit of knowing God's sovereignty is that it stabilizes our perspective in times of challenge and change, regardless of how the rest of the world might move their perspectives onto themselves or their orientation of the world based on worldly philosophy and understanding. So there are two divisions to take with us through the lesson. Our first division is God's sovereign plans require a response. And that's from verses chapters 26, verse 47 to 68. And our second division is God's sovereign plans reveal people's hearts in chapter 26, all the way through chapter 27, ending in verse 31. So in Matthew chapter 26, verse 47, and in our first division, we see the two different orientations and responses to God's sovereign plan, one in Jesus and the other in Caiaphas. Now, let's look at the various actions and responses during Jesus' arrest. For Jesus, it was the final hours before his crucifixion. 
He was in the garden of Gethsemane. It was night and he was with his disciples, praying and preparing for what was to come. Judas, who had left after Jesus had washed everyone's feet, as Jesus taught them to serve and love one another, Judas comes with a large crowd armed with clubs and swords sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. So Judas planned, schemed, and signaled by greeting, but was insulted. Uh, he insulted Jesus with an unworthy kiss. Judas knew the sin that he had already nurtured in his heart. This betrayal was no sudden thing that came out of the blue. Rather, this sin was an accepted and accommodation in Judas's heart from many instances before. Remember the flashes of his greed and disdain for Jesus. Shows up at several times before when Jesus is anointed with perfume and he argues that it could have gone to the poor. And at the supper table when Jesus predicts one of them will betray him, he asks, is it me? And knowing full well that he had disdain for Jesus. And now here in the garden, where even after calling Jesus his rabbi, he presumptuously plants an unworthy kiss, a kiss empty of any devotion or love, doing so with full confidence of his own rightness, of his own betrayal he knows he's about to do. So in James 1.15 tells us about sin. He's, it says, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it has grown full, gives birth to death. That is the nature of sin. It doesn't just happen out of the blue. It starts small. And as the small thing that we accommodate in our hearts grows, it leads to other and graver sins. But even as Judas comes to Jesus in this way, he knows that Jesus knows that all things have to be fulfilled to the very point of abandonment and even insult by one who had followed Jesus within his inner circle. Jesus never rebuffs or retorts. He truly did not break, as the Bible verse we read before says, the bruised reed or snuff out of smoldering wick. He called Jesus, Judas in re reply, friend of all things. Even as he came to Jesus with insult and injury and a traitorous cold heart, Jesus only looked to God's plan. He didn't look at the individual who was betraying him. He's looked at God and what God had for his son, the work of redemption only that he could do. So what can we learn about facing difficulties in our own life? Well, I can overcome by the power of Jesus who saved me and look to the future he's preparing for me beyond this life. For the things that go wrong or the things that might be troubling, I don't look to people. We shouldn't waste emotional energy or time blaming and holding grudges against people. I remind myself of the supreme sovereignty of God and his perfect will in my circumstances to do the very thing that is needful in me and those around me. Because Jesus says he will never leave us nor forsake us. And he wants to use everything in our lives for good, for the, for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. And so I rest in that truth. Where was Jesus taken and who was present after this? Well, Jesus was taken to the courtyard of Caiaphas, the high priest. The teachers of the law and the elders had assembled there, and this included the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin. So all the influential uh, religious rulers were there at this time to interrogate Jesus. It is a day away from the sacred observance of the Passover, and these men met very late in the evening to conspire Jesus' death. So 
in the process of trying to find witnesses to testify against Jesus, we see how people can be so motivated by self-interest, self-advancement, and self-promotion, as the religious rulers were. Their orientation was completely away from God, and this is very apparent by the way they treated the Son of God. It is also apparent with anyone who professes love of God, but the fruits of their lives do not bear it out. People like this have their orientation always somewhere else, usually on themselves or what public opinion might say. And whoever has, however, Matthew 19.29 says, whoever has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. You know, sometimes the things that we own or the people that we know can be a, such a, um, a hindrance in our orientation toward God that, that they become tools for self-serving ends, whether they're our children or our family members or the things that we own, houses or lands. And this verse is telling us we must live, give up all of those things and develop a proper orientation toward God and the things that God cares about. Do you really truly understand what God cares about? Well, Jesus did. Jesus was totally blameless and lived righteously among the people. So it was difficult to find anyone who could testify against Jesus in any matter of crime or fault or offense. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. But they didn't find any, though many false witnesses came forward, it says. And then finally two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Okay, it hasn't happened. So this was a claim that was not something that they can hold him against. Isaiah 53, 6-8 also shares an important prophecy of what was to occur. It says that we all like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way, his own orientation, his own direction. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. So he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can recount his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was stricken for the transgression of my people. So Jesus did not answer to the first question about the claim that he would destroy the temple of God. The temple of God, as that temple was his own body, really, it was himself. To answer it, they would not have known or understood what he was talking about. So that is the nature of prophecy. It is often uh, something that you can't make much sense of until you see it accomplished. And even then, it's hard to comprehend without uh, help and looking into the scripture um, with uh wise and faithful counselors. I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days, he said. Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. I charge you, they said, under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And this is an important second question, because this question is central to the identity of the Messiah. Jesus knew who he was, and he declared uh, his identity as the Messiah with singular, unwavering testimony of himself uh, throughout his ministry, and he had proven his claims with miraculous signs and wonders, <clears throat> both spiritually, materially, and in knowledge and wisdom, perfectly in line with God's revealed word and the scripture. 
He knew what will what would come about in due time, as he is not only the creator of this earth, but he's the creator and ruler over the next, the kingdom of God, to come. The problem for us often is that we have an earthbound perspective based on what's happening around us, what people of this world tell us, what we hear in the news and in newspapers, and we do not understand or bother to consider the larger, more encompassing, greater reality Jesus has reminded us and told us about. He says we have been created for eternity. All people have. We know deep inside we, have, we were not created to just die and be forgotten. We were created for eternity. And much of our vision and our thinking is about what happens to us after we die. The eternal life is only possible in the giver of that life, in Jesus. So Jesus replies, yes, it is as you say. But I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on clouds of, of heaven. And that's a prophecy about himself and in the days to come. They were setting this up to charge Jesus with blasphemy. Only the Roman government can initiate a formal trial. The best that the religious leaders and the group can do is to have a kind of hearing. So this is an interrogation at their behest. But only the Roman government could execute someone for uh, no reason whatsoever. But the hearing itself was rigged to further entrap Jesus based on lies and misrepresentation. We are living through times such as these, very similar to what Jesus uh, was experiencing where people are just spreading so much misinformation, especially now the buildup against God's people. People have never been more confused, divided, anxious, and unclear about human existence and the times, I feel, even as they have access to more information than ever before in human history with Google and with the internet, misinformation and lies are pervasive in our world and they lead people astray. The Bible says Satan is the father of lies. Lies and distortions can fully confuse people into believing an entirely different perception of the world than what God has taught us. We even see much of this in the wars fought right now. There's a, a media blackout in certain countries against uh, warfare that is going on on some uh, countries uh, in, in Central Asia and in Europe. So in the hearing, the religious leaders went into a self-righteous fit of violence against Jesus. None of them seem to have any sense of shock or dismay over the rush of brutality and, and evil that had overcome them. So it says in verse 67, Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? So they are mocking him at every turn before they take him to Pilate. So what does Jesus' revelation of himself mean to you and your life today? I hope that you can say that everything in your life rests on the focal point of this trial in your heart, that Jesus himself is your Messiah. As much as these uh, disciples had to struggle with this question themselves, who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Jesus asked his own disciples not too long before this happened. Do you believe that I am the promised one of God sent to deliver you from your sins and the power of evil over your lives? Jesus is asking us that question today. Who do you say that I am? Everything rests on each of us answering this question today. True believers believe Jesus is the fulfillment of all that was promised from ancient times by God. He is the only one who can translate us into the life of God, into the future of eternity. We are created with eternity in our hearts. So principle number one is that God's sovereign plan overrule all opposition. 
God's sovereign plans overrule all opposition. Every orientation, every willful defiance, God's plans will be achieved regardless of our personal opinions, our private doubts, and our betrayals. God's will is going to get done. So we're going to see this in God's sovereign plans revealing people's hearts for what they are. So we see here Peter who had said that he would never deny Jesus. We see how important it is that God accomplishes his plan for our deliverance, even when all those he had commissioned to be his followers run away, show lack of will, lack of courage, or lack of commitment. Peter, who boldly said to Jesus that he would never fall away, later did so three times. A servant girl, a girl by the gateway to the courtyard, and then people among the crowd noticed that he was a Galilean. His accent was a little off. He, by oaths and curses, denied that he knew Jesus each time. Isn't it such a relief that God's salvation plan doesn't depend on any of us? It doesn't depend on Peter. It doesn't depend on the faithfulness of his, of his disciples. It depends on God. And he qualifies the call. That's what he does with Peter. He qualifies the call. And he trains us to be more faithful like himself. Then Peter remembered after he betrayed Jesus three times as the rooster crowed, that Jesus said, Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. We also see the, uh, the revealing of the chief priest's heart when Judas comes back and realizes the gravity of what he has done. He wants to return the money, but they said they don't care for the money anymore, realizing it's going to be blood money. They were not religious leaders who cared about helping people atone for their sins with repentance. They were self-serving in their own aims to achieve their own ends, using the law and their positions to achieve their own ends, whatever it took, whether even as it involved the death of an innocent man. So in Acts 2, 23, why does God hold people responsible for events he plans like Jesus' death? Well, it all goes back to where the origination of sin in our hearts. We are the ones who are acting and working into sin. The, the acts that we commit doesn't come out of the blue all of a sudden, out of nowhere. Sin just doesn't happen like that. It occurs with premeditation and thought and planning and growing into consideration from the makeup and determination that we build within the heart of our within the heart in bringing Jesus over to the condemned over to be condemned and tortured and crucified it didn't happen at the hands of the people who were somehow mysteriously controlled and acting out of character and acting out of spiritual immaturity no we know that the build-up against Jesus happened in the spirit these religious rulers for many many months before and in Judas's life too many many weeks and months before they were harboring a disdain for Jesus, a hate for Jesus. And it was happening according to the character that they had developed and the condition of their sinful hearts. James 1.15 tells us, God has given people choices and they choose their roles played in their lives. They can always make the choice to be complicit and to take the side that they wish. In regards to Jesus, we have the choice to accept him or betray him, to reject him for who he is. He says he is, and he says he's the only way to the Father. We know this. So comparing the actions of Peter and Judas, we see that Peter went out and wept bitterly with guilt from his own betrayal of Jesus when he said he, could ne he would never do so. It was a failure of courage, a failure of nerves. 
Judas, however, entered into hopeless darkness, knowing full well that the sin that he allowed into his heart condemned Jesus. That sin wasn't something suddenly appearing in his heart, as I had said before. It was seeded and nurtured, and it grew in G uh, Judas over time. Judas, therefore, killed himself with utter hopelessness because he had already rejected Jesus as his Lord. He could not have done the things, the terrible and dishonorable things that he did to, he did to Jesus if there was an inkling that he held up Jesus as his Lord at any point, since the only hope that he would or could ever have had was rejected out of hand. As the notes explained so well in our BSF notes this week, he witnessed every miracle and listened as Jesus taught. Judas heard Peter's, Peter's proclamation of faith, yet Judas' choice was different from the others. He returned Jesus' love with betrayal. Most devastating of all, Judas chose remorse instead of repentance. He felt sorry for himself. At every crossroad Jesus faced, Judas, Jesus offered him life. He gave him a chance. Yet tragically, Judas chose death as his betrayal of Jesus revealed the truth about his heart. The difference between Peter and Judas was critical. Peter had a failure of nerve, whereas uh, Judas had a failure of heart to be committed to Jesus. So how do we, how have we experienced the Holy Spirit's purifying work when you have sinned? Well, we want sin to be flushed out and have no rooting in our hearts. We know and we acknowledge the Holy Spirit and His work, in His work in conquering sin in our lives so that it doesn't grow uh, like weeds and overtake who we are. The Spirit gives us eyes to look to Jesus and Jesus alone as He is the only one who can atone for the sinful reality of our flesh and the wicked and depraved heart that we all possess. He is the only one who can change and transform me into His likeness by the Holy Spirit who is living in me, He says, as He has promised for all those who would follow Him. So the second principle is God's sovereign plans require Jesus' sacrificial death. God's sovereign plans require Jesus' sacrificial death. That's a principle that we, ha we can find great rejoicing and, and joy from. Because, again, it doesn't depend on us. It's all about what Jesus does. And in front of Pilate, Jesus says, in response to him asking, Are you king of the Jews? And Jesus says, Yes, it is as you say. Pilate also had a chance, but it also revealed the chances and opportunities to reveal his own heart. While Pilate was sitting in the judge's seat, his wife sent in a message that said, Don't have anything to do with this innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. And Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah, the Christ? Pilate asked. And they all answered, Crucify him. You know, that's an interesting choice that they make. That they would automatically take Jesus and cry out that he, and insist that he be crucified as an innocent man. It says that Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting. He took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. He says, I am innocent of this man's blood. He said, it is your responsibility. And the crowd in response said, let this blood be on us and our children. So confidently, without knowing what they're doing. 
Even Pilate as governor and executor of justice did what was politically expedient under pressure. He had received warning from his wife and knew full well that this was extremely out of the ordinary to be judging an innocent man to, and condemning, condemning him to death. But he did not stand in the way of the court of law to execute a man, to willingly execute a man because he was disliked by the religious elites. Pilate chose himself. He chose self-preservation, and he was himself self-serving and sought to do what would save his own skin. So what lessons do we learn from all of this? Well, the persecution of the church can also be without consideration of justice, rule of law, and the value of human life. When push comes to shove, even rulers with their professed authority and power succumb to strategies for their own preservation and their own survival. That is why we must look to Jesus, who was faithful, who loved us and was gracious to us in patient and long-suffering to show us mercy in the power of the blood shed for us that we might be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you gave everything up in your Son so that we might be redeemed and we might be saved. Your promises from the very beginning when you clothed Adam, Adam and Eve in their nakedness and shame with animal skins, a life had to be shed, and that was a sign of things to come, of the Redeemer that you had promised would come. And through Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you have sent your word to prophesy and to show us, Lord, that that Deliverer was going to come to redeem us and to all the world, Jew and Gentile, so that we may all proclaim and come together as worshipers of Christ our Lord and Savior into the kingdom of God. And we remember that in the Passover this season. We remember that, Lord, that is not just the firstborn now, it is all born that are saved in the blood of the cross, the blood of the Lamb given for us. And we praise you. And in the resurrection, Lord, we look for the kingdom of God being un unveiled and revealed and going forth in power in our age. And we pray that we would help, you would help us to live into that greater reality each day. We thank you for all of this in Yeshua's precious name we pray. Amen.